Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we will be looking at verses 7 through 11 today. 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your continued grace to us. Um, If you were to hold our deeds against us, none of us could stand. Uh, Our sins have overtaken us and have overwhelmed us, and we drown in them. And we praise you that Christ is the great Redeemer, our Advocate, the one who forgives us our sins and treats us not as our sins deserve. And so we pray that as we look at this passage today, that you might help us to understand what you have written down for our instruction, encouragement, admonition, admonishment. Help us to know what you've called us to do as believers according to this passage in Christ's name. Amen. On June 23rd, 2018, 12 boys and their soccer coach went to explore the Tumyuang Cave in northern Thailand. Shortly after they entered the cave, it began to rain, marking an early beginning to monsoon season, and the rain flooded the cave and blocked off their path of escape. Thus, 12 children and one adult were trapped between two and three kilometers inside of the cave. Uh, The accounts of this cave rescue captured the world's attention. You remember it well. And when the video, the first video was posted online of the divers finding them alive in the cave, the world went wild with celebration. But that celebration quickly ended because that was only first base. Finding them, getting them out was another task entirely. This is uh, a map of the way in. Um, They had to navigate, the rescuers had to navigate an impossible path of low ceilings, narrow passageways, and tight tunnels to get them out. This kind of a uh, dive, a cave dive, is something for the professionals. Not just professional divers, but professional cave divers who knew what they were doing. Unbelievably, and of course, according to God's grace, these professional divers were able to bring all 13 individuals safely through the tight underwater cavern. Unfortunately, One of the divers died from lack of oxygen. He ran out of oxygen. Uh, And another rescue diver died about a year later from infections that he got from uh, the rescue. And actually, I believe one of the boys uh, just died a couple years ago from unrelated injuries uh, who was rescued. But this is a situation where God's providence and his common grace is written everywhere. Even uh, unbelievers receive God's reign and God's kindness on them. This rescue uh, 
just has God's providence all over it, considering the degree to which the odds were stacked against the rescuers. It's a fascinating story. If you haven't read about it, uh, I encourage you to. But uh, it's a fascinating story and a testimony to God's grace. But I want to ask us a simple question about this cave rescue, and that is, what was it that gave these men success? Of course, at the end of the day, we have to say, It's the Lord. But specifically, I want to ask two things. Was the success, was it their love for people, their love for children, their love for humanity, you might say? Or was it their expertise and their skill and their knowledge? Which one would you say, oh, they were rescued because of this? Well, it was both, right? Their love, what did their love do? Their love motivated them to act. Without their love for people, they would not have even cared. Their love motivated them to act. And what did their expertise and skill do? It gave them the direction to go. We need this much oxygen. We need to do this, and we need to do that, and we need this many people, and we need these people. All that provided what was needed to be able to rescue them. And the same, of course, is true of Christianity. One of the most unnecessary and useless battles that exist within Christianity is the battle between truth and love, or the battle between theology and love, or the battle between doctrine and love. We need both. We need truth, and we need love as Christians. Now, I am aware of the temptation for some people to say, ah, don't get so caught up in doctrine just love people. That's just, we don't need to worry about all of that doctrine about salvation and soteriology and all that. That's just debating about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, okay? I'm equally aware of the opposite temptation for people to know a lot of doctrine, but to care nothing for people. Paul strikes this balance for us, and we talked about this at the 9 a.m. service a little bit today. Paul strikes the balance in Ephesians 4, 15, when he says, speaking what? The truth in love. If you will give me permission to take a quote that I came across and kind of rework it for my own purposes, we might say something like this, question, What is more important, truth or love? Answer, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? Both are needed. And in our present passage, John is going to emphasize specifically the importance of love as the distinguishing mark of the Christian. If you have not love, you have good reason to call your salvation into question. In John's gospel, and again, we find ourselves as we're in 1 John going back and forth between 1 John and John's gospel because there's so many similarities here. But if you'll let us go to John's gospel for just a moment, John 13, 35, he says, by this, or Jesus says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What this means is I do not care. If you know fancy theological words like superlapsarianism 
and infralapsarianism and monergism and synergism and presuppositionalism and dichotomous, trichotomous, and amoralianism. I don't care if you know the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, or what the three forms of unity are. I don't care if you know Greek and Hebrew. I don't care if you've attended church your whole life. If you hate your brother, you have a good reason to doubt the genuineness of your conversion. That's it. That's what John gives to us today. And we're going to work through this in two main sections. We're going to see in verses 7 through 8, the commandments. And then we are going to see in verses 9 through 11, the evidence. And so let's read this passage in front of us today. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In verses 7 through 8, John presents to us, at first glance, what appears like it is a very odd contradiction. He says, I'm giving to you a commandment that is old. And then he says, oh, I'm giving to you a commandment that's new. And you're kind of saying, well, which one is it, John? He says, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and you, because darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. Let's take each verse in turn here. In verse 7, he says that this commandment that I am giving to you is a commandment that's not new. It's old. You've had this from the very beginning. The commandment that he is referring to is the commandment to love one another. We know this because he goes on to talk specifically about this, loving one another. In addition, he also borrows from his own gospel. Okay? You can see the similar terminology here in John 13 where he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. See this similar language. The new commandment is that you love one another just as I loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So when John says that the commandment he is giving is one that is an old one, what he means is that from the start, from the very beginning, Christians have always known that they are supposed to love others. This is not new in that sense. Okay? No one's being caught off guard here. No one's being surprised like, I thought we were supposed to hate people. No. From the beginning, this is an old commandment. You're supposed to love other people. When John says you should love one another, therefore we shouldn't be surprised. Okay? But then he says, in another sense, there's something new about this command. And he says this in verse 8. He says, at the same time, 
Uh, you might say, in a different sense, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, he says it's an old commandment and it's a new commandment, which is reminiscent of the well-known line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. <laughs> Just figure out what you want to write and write it. <laughs> right? Which one are you talking about? Is it the best of times or is it the worst of times? And of course, it was the best of times in one sense. And in another sense, it was the worst of times. And that's the same thing with John here. In one sense, the command is old. It's been around forever. And in another sense, it's new. And so really the question I think that we want to ask is, well, in what sense do you mean that it's new? We can understand the sense that it's old. But in what, what sense is the command to love one another new? And there's actually been a lot of uh, ink spilled on this debate uh, theologians and commentators say, well, we think that it's old and new in this sense. We think that it's old and new in this sense. Um, and there is, I think, some room for discussion on this. But I think um, the, 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 the deciding vote here goes to the insight that we receive from John's gospel. Uh, again, we already saw this verse, but John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just uh, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I think that it's most likely that John means that this commandment is new in this sense. Okay? The command is love one another. That commandment is as old as time. How is it new then? It's new in this sense. We actually got to see what that looked like for the first time in Jesus Christ. It's new in that sense. It's new in that you finally have a real example of what this command actually has meant this whole time. It didn't mean that you merely tolerate or endure people, but it actually means whatever Jesus did. That's what it means. In other words, it means something like this. From the beginning of time, you've been told to love one another, but you've never had a perfect example of it. All the patriarchs and all the heroes of the Bible have fallen short in showing you what this should look like. But now that we have Christ, this command to love is refreshed and given anew because we can see it in full for what it really means. This is the difference between explaining to your child how to change a tire and demonstrating to your child how to change a tire. Okay? Okay, first of all, son, go and get uh, the jack, and then go get the tire iron. Uh, Dad, what's the, the jack? It's a name, but what's, what's the tire iron? Well, it's that thing that has the wheels and the handle that goes up and down, and the, 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 the other thing is like a plus sign, like this kind of a thing with the little on the ends, and what are you talking about? It's one thing to explain it to them. It's another thing to say, this is 
the tire iron, this is the jack. Oh, okay. Now I can see what you're talking about. And the same thing is true here. It's one thing to say you should love one another, and then it's another thing to say this is what I was talking about. What Jesus is doing, that's what we're talking about here. You have a perfect example. So that now you are supposed to look at Scripture, and you're supposed to look at the account of what Christ has done, and you're supposed to say this. Aha! Now I get it. Now I understand. When the Bible says I should love other people, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about David. Yeah, he did some loving things, but he really screwed up in some significant ways, right? It's pointing to Christ as the ultimate example. This new commandment is true in Christ. Of course, we understand that. It's true in Christ. And it's also true in you as a believer. You can see that in the second half of verse 8, where he says, which is true in him and in you. It's not surprising to see that it's true in him. It is surprising to see that it's true in you, that I could actually demonstrate love that's pleasing to God. You as a Christian are enabled to show this same kind, same variety, same type of love by virtue of your union with Christ. Jesus has not left you alone with regard to your sanctification. Okay? He did not abandon you. He did not say, look, the gospel is for your justification, but I've done enough. Okay? <laughs> you guys figure the rest out on your own. Okay? He actually gave to us the uh, ability, because of his grace, through the justification, to grow in our sanctification. He gave to us the right tools. This is part of what it means to be uh, the doctrine of union with Christ. We know this clearly from John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? He gives the illustration of the vine and the branches, right? If you cut off that branch, okay, it's dead because it has to be connected to that vine for it to have life. And the same thing is true here. Your union with Christ means that you have the ability not of yourself, okay, but you can show Christ-like love because of his work in you. This is because, the the remainder of the verse tells us this, that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay? This is particularly encouraging for us because what we recognize is this simple truth, that Christ is prevailing... And that he is driving out the darkness. And we have evidence of this every single time a person repents and believes in Christ. We have evidence that the gospel still works. That it's still effective. And you have evidence of this if you are genuinely in Christ. You also have evidence of this by looking at your life over the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And saying, I'm not the same person I was. That's no work of mine. But that's a work of Christ driving out this darkness, as we see in the passage in front of us. Satan's kingdom is melting away, and Christ's kingdom is expanding. Jesus is prevailing, and Jesus will be victorious. Now, all of this brings us to a very appropriate question. 
And the question is simply this. Whose side are you on? The Bible gives to us very clear um, passages that indicate to us and teach us directly that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There's believers and unbelievers. There's no neutral territory. There's no group of people who are kind of undecided on which side they're going to be in. Sheep, goats, saved, unsaved, believing, unbelieving. That's, that's it. There's two groups. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, which side are you on? And what John does here is he gives to us a test to discern this. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Verses 7 through 8 is about the commandment to love. It's, not, it's old in one sense. It's new in another sense. You're supposed to love one another. Verses 9 through 11, we see the evidence of where, of which side I am on. We read this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We've talked about one of the central themes in 1 John, and that is that he provides several tests of salvation. You want to know if you're in Christ or not? Are you doubting your salvation? Are you unsure? Of your faith? Well, here's some things to go to and read. He says, as one of these tests, in verse 9, that if anyone claims to be in the light, that is, to be in Christ, or to be a Christian, and they hate their brother, they're in darkness. You hate your brother, then this claim of yours is not true. It's a false claim. Now, this passage is talking directly about loving fellow believers. Other passages we know speak of Christians should love their enemies, and we understand that. That's not the focus of this passage. It's the focus of other passages. But this, this passage is specifically looking at your love for fellow believers. People, I presume, sitting next to you right now. Those who are in Christ. Your love for them. Jesus says, of course, in John 15, 17, these things I command to you so that you will love one another. And while we've already seen John 13, this is worth repeating. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the distinguishing marks of salvation, of conversion, One of the distinguishing marks is love for fellow believers. Jesus Jesus says, this is the way that you can tell who's a believer and who's not. This 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 is how unbelievers will know. Even they will have some insight to know whether you're a believer or not by this one test. Do you have love for the brethren? Now, we can think of many examples of hating fellow believers. 
and there's a list a mile long. Some people, through self-righteousness, self-esteem, narcissism, tend to have very high inflated views of self. And they look down their noses at other Christians, even within their own local church. They may believe that they are superior because they hold to certain tertiary positions. Well, I hold to this, and I do this, and I don't do that. And therefore, because you do that, you're a lesser Christian, and I despise you. Self-righteousness is one way to destroy a church, by the way. No doubt you've seen a church or visited or even been part of a church where this was rampant. And while it's always hard to discern the heart and to know for sure, if this person is hating other Christians, is hating other Christians because they're not exactly like them, then according to this passage, this person is walking in darkness and you don't even know where you're going. You have a good reason to doubt the genuineness of your conversion, if this is you. Uh, Another example of this is that some people will hold to a variety of some kind of theological superiority in the church. And it may even be very good orthodox theological convictions. But they have no patience and no place for others who are still trying to work things out. I'm not quite sure where I am on this particular position. Well, if you were theologically superior like me, then you would have all this worked out. Instead of lovingly coming aside others in the church and patiently helping them, they have a certain smugness about them and a deep-down hatred for them because they are not enlightened like I am. By the way, think of how long it took you to get to where you are today. Okay? Think of how much grace God has given to you. You're, first of all, we're all going to get to heaven. And we're going to have some theological corrections to go through, okay? Okay. Look at where you were theologically 10 years ago. Are you thankful that the Lord is slowly bringing you along? Okay. So don't be smug towards people who are where you were 10 years ago. Don't hate those people. Don't despise those people. Love them. They're slowly learning and growing in knowledge and understanding of the Lord as well. Another reason that believers may find themselves or um, people who claim to be believers might hate others is because of differences in conscience issues. This is one of those endless raging battles that goes on in the church. Those with stronger consciences tend to mock and roll their eyes at people with weaker consciences. Has anyone ever done this before? Have you ever rolled your eyes? Have you ever... Oh, all right. Yeah? At the same time, those who have a weaker conscience 
will, um, will be resentful towards those who have a stronger conscience. And just like the Pharisee in Luke 18, no matter where you are on the conscience spectrum, every single person has the tendency to say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. (laughs) What a blessing you have in me, God. (laughs) Right? Now, I am not saying that we can't discuss these things together. We should. And I'm certainly not promoting moral relativism and saying everything is up for grabs. I'm not saying that we can't seek to persuade others. What I am saying is that there is a difference between loving others through this and despising them or being dismissive of them. And this is really the test that John is giving to us. He's not saying that we can't discuss these things together and try to come to a better understanding. We have an obligation to do that, by the way. But he is saying, don't hate your brother. Don't hate them for whatever reason it is. If you hate your brother, if you hate your brother, then you're the one in darkness. You're the one deceived. Albert Barnes says, if a man has not that, or love, he is in deep darkness, whatever else he may have. I don't care what you have. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how many letters you have after your name for your degrees, okay? I don't care what you know. If you don't have love, then you're in darkness. It's pretty simple and straightforward. On the other hand... John gives to us the corollary to this. And the corollary to this is is that those who love their brothers are in the light. So verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Now it's important to note here that one of the reasons verse 10 is given to us is to cut you off at the pass because you are about to make a claim that verse 10 prevented you from being able to make, okay? And the claim that you were going to make after you read the previous verses was, well, I don't hate my brother, (laughs) right? I don't hate my brother. I endure him. (laughs) I tolerate him. I put up with him. I don't really even like him that much, but I don't hate him. And so verse 10 comes along here. And cuts you off and says, it's more than that. It's more than just the absence of hate, but the presence of love. That you actually have to love whoever loves his brother. It would have been so much easier if it just said, don't hate him and leave it at that, right? I, I, I can handle that, right? I can handle that level. But if you're going to say that I have to actually love this person, with all of the differences and conscience issues, or in, in, the, in, in, in some of the, the tertiary theological, if you say, that's too much to ask. The standard is higher than a mere neutrality. You are not merely to tolerate your brother, you are to love your brother. The test here in this passage is not a test of knowledge, it is not a test of understanding, it is a test of love. Do you love them from the heart? 
What does this look like? You remember we said, well, this is a new commandment. It looks like what Christ did. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the level that we're talking about here. Like people are actually in the process of killing you, like Stephen being stoned. And you're saying, Father, forgive them. Like that's the level of love that we're talking about here. Okay. We hate people for minor reasons, okay? Okay, we hate people when they mess up our order at McDonald's, okay? Right? I mean, like, you're grumbling because it's person. You have to love people who are throwing rocks at you and murdering you. That's like, that includes everything else, by the way. Like, everything is, is like, underneath that, okay? So it doesn't matter. So, so you, you, can't, you can't come here to this passage and say, hang on a second, I've got the exemption here, okay? This situation, I don't have to love that person. No, it's like everything. You have to love them in all things. Christ is the model, He sacrificed himself for us, and we are to sacrifice ourselves for others. When we do this, it gives to us assurance that Christ is at work in us, that we are in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling. On the contrary, verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. One of the evidences of salvation is, is that Jesus Christ is driving the darkness out of our hearts. He's driving it out. If that darkness is not being driven out, and there is no love in you at all, then you have reason to doubt the genuineness of your faith. Now, we understand, and we have emphasized, and so don't take this out of context, but we have emphasized that sanctification is a process of growth, okay? This passage is not calling us to um, moral perfection. We know that. Can't say, well, I didn't perfect. We are going to have, but we're going to see growth, and we're going to see a change, and we're going to see a difference, and we're going to see, I used to hate this person, and now I love this person. How did that happen? This is evidence that Christ is driving the darkness out. The person who hates his brother is blind, It's likely, by the way, that he doesn't even know that he's blind. If you were born physically blind, then living in darkness is normal, and you don't know that anything is amiss. And if you are born spiritually blind, as you are, then living in the darkness is normal, and you don't know that anything is amiss. The person who is blind in this passage cannot see. Evidence of not being able to see is making foolish decisions. Okay. Running into all sorts of things. He's blind. He can't see where he's going. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like he runs into this and runs into that and makes this foolish decision and makes that foolish decision. This spreads into every category, by the way. They'll make foolish relationship decisions, foolish financial decisions. They'll elevate self. Their life will be an example of their folly. It's very hard to reason with a blind person or to explain to them what it looks like to be in the light. 
Our appeal then as Christians is to uh, is for them to come into the light. That is what we want. Come to the light. And we come into the light through a person. Okay? You can have physical light through a flashlight, through a light in your kitchen, through the sun, and by that light you see everything. Well, when it comes to Christianity, we come into that light through a person, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. When we, come, when we are in Christ, everything becomes clear. Oh, I can see that. I, I tripped over that so many times before. I made that foolish decision a thousand times. But Christ has illuminated the path in front of me so that I see that that thing that I was doing is folly. And that thing is, has caused so much grief in my life. Christ is the light that exposes these things for us. We know this because of Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now, where do we go from here? The attribute of love is an attribute that I would say is almost completely and entirely absent from our world in 2023. It's non-existent. And I understand and I am aware that many politicians and many movements today claim to be all about love. And yet, for all of the press that love is getting today, it is largely absent from society. It goes without saying that some of the people who emphasize love the most in our culture are some of the most rage-filled people you will ever meet. But it does no good for us to sit here and point the finger out there when this passage is talking to us. We have a great need ourselves to increase our love for the brethren. And oftentimes, our love for the brethren looks like small, insignificant, thankless tasks. There's so many things that we don't want to be inconvenienced for. Just to help a believer here in our own church, they need help with this. And there's so many minor things that we can't be inconvenienced because of these things. We would do well to pursue love for the brethren with all of our being. We are a family right here. Right? There are local congregations all over this world by God's grace. And we are just one of many. We're a family. May have some crazy uncles here, but we're family, right? <laughs> and aunts too, crazy uncles. <laughs> but we love one another, right? Remember that we began by discussing the importance of love and doctrine both. I want to maybe strike balance here of sorts. If according to 1 Corinthians 13, knowledge without love is nothing, then love without knowledge is misguided. 
We are to put on love, but we are to channel it as God has called us to do. God reserves the right to define what this looks like. Our world defines it in many ways that don't agree with what God has said. And we are to define it as God has defined it. Loveless knowledge, loveless knowledge looks like the theological academics who know all of the deep truths of Scripture but have no heart, no compassion, and no love for people. You know the kinds of people that we're talking about here. Knowledgeless love, on the other hand, looks like Christians who are accepting worldly definitions of love and going off the tracks. Love is the fire that warms our doctrine, while doctrine is the rail that directs our love. The loveless Christian is a lifeless Christian, and the doctrineless Christian is a wandering Christian. We need all of this fitting together as God has called us to fit them together. Now, in the case of the first John passage, what we are at risk of here and what we are warned against is we are at risk of becoming a lifeless Christian, or said another way, possibly demonstrating that we are no Christian at all. It's the seriousness of what he's saying here. Now, it would be tempting for me at this point to simply apply the text this way. Love your brother and leave it at that. Now, to be sure, I am going to tell you to love your brother, but not to leave it at that, because I want you to understand the angle that this passage is coming from, okay? This passage is not saying, try harder to love others. You understand that? But it's saying, you will know if you're in Christ by whether you are loving others. Love is presented here not as something to lift yourself up by your bootstraps and go out and accomplish. That's like we saw a couple weeks ago, getting the cart before the horse. Rather, love here is presented as an evidence of this, okay? So, in other words, uh, after the service here today, suddenly you find out that someone is coming over to your house for lunch, okay? You've got to beat them home, right, to clean up the house. All right, kids, we have (laughs) four minutes and 18 seconds. (laughs) Go, right? Um, versus the responsible person who already had their house clean to begin with, right? It's kind of the, the thrust that we're saying here in this situation, okay? The, the, the thrust of the passage is not, oh, I hate all these people. Let me go quick hurry and clean this up because that's trying to earn my, right? But it's look at yourself right now. Before you've had a chance to clean anything up, before you've had a chance to go and work really hard, where are you at now? The passage is saying that's evidence of where your heart is. Does the difference make sense there? I hope so. (laughs) 
let, let, me, let me say it this way. The thrust of the text is not this. You can earn your way to Christ by how fervently you love others. That's not the, that's not the thrust of it, okay? Um, that's, again, getting the cart before the horse. We want to emphasize the importance of striving to love others, yes, while at the same time recognizing that we need Christ to produce that in us. And if it's there, then there's evidence that I'm regenerated. That's what this passage So let me say it one more way. If you look at your heart and you say, I am completely loveless and I hate all these people. And I don't know that there's any love in me at all. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Okay? Here's what the answer to this is. The answer is, don't, it's not try harder to love people. The answer is, repent and believe on Christ. And then he will do this work in your lives. You see the difference there in that? With that being said, four points of application. Number one, evaluate whether you are in the faith or not by whether you love the brethren. Look to this as an evidence. Are you growing? Is there a lifestyle here? That's the first one. The next one... We have two if statements, if-then statements. If, after doing number one, you are in the faith, rejoice and worship God for his grace. If you're in the faith, if you've looked at number one, evaluate whether you're in the faith, you've done that evaluation. If you are in the faith, then do what? Rejoice and worship God for his grace. Okay? You've looked at point number one, and you've said, I'm not in the faith. If you're not in the faith, repent and believe on Christ. It's a very simple admonition for us here today, is to believe in the gospel. And then four, because I told you I was going to say this, love the brethren from the heart. Love one another here. Lord, we thank you for this time and your continued grace to us. Help us now. I pray that for those who are in Christ here, you would give them a peace that passes all understanding. You would give them an assurance of their faith through this passage. Don't let them wallow in doubt. And I understand that it is very challenging. Some of us find it very easy to fall into doubt and lack of assurance when we are in Christ. And so I pray that those who might find themselves in that situation, that you would exceedingly comfort. I also pray, likewise, that those who may be here today and are outside of Christ, that you would not grant to them a false assurance, but that you would give to them knowledge of their lost condition, In fact, even strike a terror in their hearts, a terror that would drive them to Christ, take refuge in Jesus. And then through that refuge in Christ, you would begin to do this work of increasing their love for the brethren. Help us to love one another from our hearts, to care for the needs of others. In Christ's name, amen.